Good morning, dear friends. Good to see you this morning. What a blessing it is to be together on this Lord's Day to do the things that God requires that we do. So great to see each and every one of you here. I always look forward to the first day of the week when Christians can come together to worship God in spirit and in truth. In fact, out of all of the things that we do in our worship to God, I want to begin this morning by asking you which part excites you the most? Which aspect excites you the most? Which aspect of our worship really fires you up and, and moves you and causes you to even talk about it some more with your family in the car ride on the way home? Is it what we just finished doing a, a couple of minutes ago? Is it the singing portion? Is it the portion of our worship where we blend our voices together in song and we sing praises to the Lord? Is it the time we're going to spend later in communion? Is it the time when we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper and we're going to remember what Jesus did for us at Calvary? Is it the time when we pray or when we Learn and study the word of God or whenever you hear preaching and teaching from the word of God. What about. What about our giving? What about our collection? What about what we just did a couple of minutes ago when we just put some money in a basket? When you got up this morning. And as you were getting yourself ready to come here and worship the Lord and give praise to his name. Were you excited about giving? Were you passionate this morning and zealous about giving to God as you were getting your clothes on and, and making your way to your car to come here and worship God? Did you think to yourself, man, I can't wait to go to church so I can give to the Lord? When that basket just came in front of you a few minutes ago. Did you have a smile on your face? Did you feel some joy in your heart in the car ride on the way home? Or maybe when you're just talking to some brethren out there in the hallway. Are you going to find yourself talking with your brethren about just how moving the giving portion of our worship to God was today? I'm asking you those questions because I have a suspicion. I have a suspicion. I have a suspicion that out of all of the ways in which we participate in worship to God, the time we dedicate to giving is probably the least celebrated. It's probably the least enjoyed and the least favorite. It's probably the least forward thing, the least thing we're looking forward to as we're in the car ride on the way to church, and maybe that's because we got an incorrect view of it. Maybe that's because we have an unbiblical view of our giving to God. Maybe it's because we kind of view those, those five minutes in which we give to God between 9.05 and 9.10 as a time in which we're kind of being spiritually taxed. I mean, do you like paying taxes? You like paying your taxes? You see, as a preacher, as a gospel preacher, I pay taxes quarterly. I pay quarterly taxes. 
I pay taxes four months out of the year. And I'm going to tell you something. Every time I pay taxes, and I'm going to have to send a check to the government in a couple of weeks, I got, a, I got kind of mixed feelings about that when I do that. I mean, there's a part of me that's, hey, I'm okay with it. I, I kind of like it. I kind of like being able to contribute to, to my country, having things that I wanted to have, things like public schools and things like good infrastructure, roads and bridges and a, and a strong military. I mean, whenever I pay taxes, there's a part of me that, that, that enjoys being able to do that. I like being able to contribute to the things I like for my country to have. But at the same time, I'm going to tell you something. During those four months out of the year, I'm not going to be throwing a party. You're not going to see me write a check to the government and saying, hey, Genesia, let's celebrate this by going to dinner in a movie. You see, while I do have to write four checks to the government a year, I never enjoy doing that. You're never going to find me writing a check to the government and thinking to myself, man, this is just great. I love doing this. I got a big smile on my face. No, sir, and no, ma'am. I never look forward to paying taxes. And I wonder if that's how we view giving. I wonder if that's how we view what we just did a few minutes ago. If it is, then I hope we do something over the next couple of weeks. I hope we read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. I really hope we do that Bible reading over the next couple of weeks. You see, even if you have fallen off the Bible reading wagon a long time ago, I hope you'll at least get back on it the next couple of weeks. And read 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9 because in those chapters, you know what Paul talks a lot about? He talks a lot about what we just did. He, he talks a lot about giving. Specifically, he spends a lot of time talking about a contribution to needy saints in Judea. You see, during a time when a famine was severely impacting the brethren in Jerusalem, the Apostle Paul encourages Gentile congregations in Achaia and Macedonia to pitch in and help them out. He encourages them to raise money or raise funds to help out their brethren who were struggling in Judea. You see, these two chapters, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, or among the greatest chapters about giving in all the Bible. And what I want to do for this first lesson this morning is I just want to preview them. I want to talk about those chapters. I want to try to use those chapters to fire us up and get us excited and motivate us to strive to be godly givers. In fact, there are five words. There are five words that I hope you'll keep in the forefront of your mind as you consider what the Apostle Paul teaches the Corinthians about giving over the next couple of weeks. And the first word we need to think about a lot as we consider what Paul says in these chapters is the word pattern. We need to really think about the word pattern. I want to ask you to please go in your Bible to 1 Corinthians 16. You see, godly giving follows an inspired pattern. Now, before we consider 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, let's go back to, this, uh, to a chapter that we read a few weeks ago in our Bible reading, and that's 1 Corinthians 16. Do you remember 1 Corinthians 16? Here, Paul is also talking about this contribution for the needy saints in Jerusalem. The Corinthian brethren had evidently promised 
to take part in this. They had committed themselves to helping out those brethren. And Paul is trying to urge them to be faithful to their commitment, to have that contribution ready for him when he gets there. And in 1 Corinthians 16 in verse 1, Paul says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia, so do you also on the first day of every week. Each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made when I come. And when I arrive, whomever you may approve, I will send them with letters to carry your gift, to carry your benevolent gift to Jerusalem. Now, those verses we find there in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 3, are critical verses. They are absolutely critical verses. They are critical verses in the word of God because they show us exactly how God authorizes a local church to raise funds. They show us exactly how God authorizes a local church like Monta Vista to raise money. Notice a local church is authorized by God to raise money, not through bake sales, not through selling raffle tickets or organizing car washes, not through setting up lemonade stands and, and selling a bunch of books and offering people Starbucks coffee. No, the Bible says that God authorizes a local church to raise funds through giving. Th through a collection, through a collection gathered by the members of a local church on the first day of the week. That is the only means by which God authorizes a church to raise funds. And let me just say that I realize, especially in our time today, that there are a lot of questions that people have about how exactly a church is to do that. And let me just say that a lot of that has to do with judgment. It has to do with judgment. It has to do with the judgment of the leadership of a local church. I mean, think about what we just did. How did we take up the collection here at Monta Vista between 9.05 and 9.10? Well, we passed out some baskets, right? I mean, if you were here from 9.05 to 9.10, you got a basket put in front of you. But there are a lot of churches that don't do it the way we do it. They use different judgment. They don't pass around baskets. You know what they pass around? Plates. They pass trays. Some may pass around a hat. And then due to the effects of the pandemic a couple of years ago, many churches now have collection boxes in their lobby. And some even have electronic ways for their members to give. You see, the Bible doesn't specify how a church is to take up their collection. But what it does specify is the when. It specifies the day. It specifies the first day of the week. In fact, it is interesting that out of all the things we do together on the first day of the week, our giving is the only thing we are directly commanded to do on the first day of the week. I'm going to say that again for the sake of emphasis in case you missed it. Out of all the things we do on the first day of the week, our giving is the only thing that we are directly commanded to do 
on the first day of the week. You see, we only have an example of Christians coming together on the first day of the week to partake of the Lord's Supper and preaching and teaching and singing and praying. Well, those things can be done any day of the week, but the giving we do is directly commanded to be done on Sunday. It's directly commanded to be done on the first day of the week right here in 1 Corinthians 16. Do you know what that means practically? That means practically we need to be careful of minimizing its importance. We need to be careful of thinking that it's not as important as the Lord's Supper. Or as important as the praying portions of our worship or the preaching portions of our worship. We need to be careful of viewing our giving as something that we need to kind of just get out of the way so we can now move on to doing things in the worship that we enjoy a little bit more. That's wrong. That is unbiblical. That is an unscriptural way of thinking. One word we need to think about. As we study what Paul says to the Corinthians about giving, is when you think about this word pattern, there's an inspired pattern given to us for giving in the New Testament. And then a second thing we need to think about is the word participation. The word participation. Now I am going to 2 Corinthians and I'm going to chapter 8. I'm going to 2 Corinthians 8, and Brother Ryan read verse 3 earlier, and I appreciate him doing that. But let's go back up to verse 1, if you don't mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, as Paul again addresses this contribution that the Corinthians need to have ready for the brethren in Judea. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, Paul says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation and the support of the saints, and this not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. I want you to notice carefully verse number four. You see verse four, you see that word participation there? That word participation, and some translations may be fellowship. Fellowship. What is fellowship? Well, biblical fellowship, carries the idea of sharing, participation, partnership, joint participation. You see, according to the Apostle Paul, the giving done by these Christians in Corinth was a form of fellowship. It was a form of partnership and participation. It was a means of sharing in the work of God. Specifically, it was a means of sharing in the work of benevolence. You see, while the brethren in Jerusalem were starving and suffering during this time of famine, the giving of the Christians in Corinth and Macedonia was going to help them. It was going to bless them. It was going to relieve them and provide for their needs. You see, one of the authorized works of a local church is the work of benevolence. It's the work of giving and sharing. It's the work of raising funds on the first day of the week to help 
needy saints. Remember in 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, Paul called their contribution the collection for the saints, the needy saints. And then here in 2 Corinthians chapter 18, verse number 3, or at the end of verse number 4, I'm sorry, at the end of verse 4, notice how Paul calls this a work of participation and support of the saints. You see, through the collection of these churches, God was providing the needs for struggling saints. God was actually helping his people through his people. In fact, Paul is going to go on to say in these two chapters that through all of this giving being done in Achaia and Macedonia to the brethren in Judea, what God was really doing is he's bringing peace. He's bringing peace and unity in the church. He's bringing peace and unity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. You see, beyond brethren in Judea being able to, to get some money to go buy some groceries, the giving being done here, it symbolized something. It symbolized that Gentile Christians cared about Jewish Christians. It symbolized that Gentiles and Jews were one in the body of Christ. It was a means that God was using to tear down the racial barriers that existed at this time. You see, when we give, when we give, we are participating together in the work of benevolence for needy saints, but not only are we participating in the work of benevolence together, we're also sharing and participating in the work of evangelism. The work of spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm, I, I know that, I see that in the book of Philippians. Go in your Bible, please. We'll come back to 2 Corinthians, but in Philippians chapter 1, as Paul writes to this church that he had a very special relationship with, this may have been his favorite church of all the churches that he worked with. And in Philippians chapter 1 and verse number 5, in Philippians 1 and verse 5, Paul says, in view of your participation, that word participation comes from the Greek word fellowship. It's the idea of fellowship in view of your participation or fellowship in the cause from the, of the gospel from the first day until now. What is Paul talking about when he uses the word fellowship there? He's talking about money. He's talking about money. He is saying that this church sent him money. They sent him money to support his ministry, and in that way they were in fellowship with him. That's what he's talking about there. He begins the book talking about financial support, how that's a means of fellowship, and he ends the book talking about it. In Philippians chapter 4, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, Paul says to these brethren, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared, that's the idea of fellowship again, communion, joint participation, partnership, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. Paul is saying that through their giving to him, they were in fellowship with him. They were partnering with him. They were participating in the work of evangelism. They were participating in his ministry and helping him spread the gospel throughout the world. See, that's what we do when we give. When we give, we enter into fellowship with the preachers that we're giving the money to. But don't forget about the other works we're supposed to do. Works like we're doing right now. Works like worshiping God. 
and works like teaching and grounding our new converts and the work of edifying and building each other up as brothers and sisters in Christ. Many of those works, my friends, require money. They require money. SRP is not going to give us free lights because we're church. The parking lot we just repaid. They didn't do that for free. We're not going to get free water and a free Internet service because we're the Monta Vista Church of Christ. No, all of those things, all of those things require money. And we need to think about that when we give. We need to think about that every time that basket comes in front of us, every time that basket, one of those baskets come in front of us, we need to pause and understand that in addition to, to first and foremost giving to the Lord through our giving, we're also participating in the work of God. We're also sharing in the work of God. We are investing ourselves in the most important work in the world. We are helping support gospel preachers. You're helping support me and support my family. You're supporting Brian. You're, you're supporting preachers throughout this country and throughout the world. That's what we do when we give. We get involved in the work of evangelism. We help keep the lights on and keep the water going. And we help pay for other Utilities that we need in this meeting place where we're going to come together and worship God. We're helping pay for supplies that we need to worship God. Things like Lord's Supper packets and song books. And we also are paying for teaching materials and maintaining a website. And we are contributing to the needs of the saints here and throughout the globe. You see, through our giving, we're involved in some fellowship, some Bible fellowship. It is one of the key things that binds us together in this local church and makes us a local church. We need to think about that when we give. When you think about that word pattern, and when you think about that word participation, sharing together in the cause of the gospel, and then think about this word also. Think about the word purpose. Think about that word purpose. Godly giving is also purposeful giving. When you go back to 2 Corinthians, look at chapter 9. 2 Corinthians 9, and Brother Chris read from this verse, and I appreciate him doing that, and I just want to look at it again, if you don't mind. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and verse 7, Paul's talking about giving, and he says each one, each Christian, must do just he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I want you to notice that word, purpose. A Christian is to give as he has purpose in his heart. What in the world does that mean? How in, a wor in the world does a Christian do that? What does it mean to be a purposeful giver? Well, simply put, my friends, purposeful giving is planned giving. It's planned giving. It's not spontaneous giving. It's not giving that's just a matter of chance or it's done at the last minute. It's not giving God what is left over in my pocket after I make sure my direct TV and my Netflix and my Disney Plus and my cell phone bill and all the 50 other things I bought from Amazon this week are paid for. That is not purposeful giving. Purposeful giving is not giving God whatever I can find in my pocket. When the basket comes in front of me, instead, it is something we decide on ahead of time. 
It is part of our family budget. In fact, it should be the main thing that our family budget is centered around. You see, if God is really the top priority in our lives, like we claim all the time, then it should only make sense that he should be the top thing in our budget. He should be the top item on our financial spreadsheet before determining how much money we're going to give to the Phoenix Suns this year or the Arizona Cardinals or to our streaming channels or buy a new camper or a new swimming pool or going on an expensive vacation. We first need to determine how much are we going to give to God? How much are we going to give to the Lord? You see, according to the Apostle Paul, godly giving requires forethought. It requires planning. It requires making a decision before we even walk through the doors. It requires deciding on an amount that we are going to give back to God and then working everything else in our lives, even our budget, around that. That's purposeful giving. That's what the Apostle Paul is talking about there in that verse. But that's not the only word we need to notice there. We also need to notice this word cheerful. Let me look at this word cheerful. Now, before we read verse 7 again, go back to chapter 8 and look at verse 1, please. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1, notice carefully what the Apostle Paul says there. He says, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. So he's trying to motivate the Corinthians to honor their commitment to help their brethren in Judea by bringing up the Macedonians. The churches like Philippi and Thessalonica, he's saying, hey, they're involved in this work also, and I bragged about you, so don't make me look bad right now. And so in verse 2, he says that in a great ordeal of affliction, notice, these, these churches in Macedonia are suffering. They're going through persecution. They're going through things that we don't have to go through in 21st century America. Paul says in a great deal of affliction, their abundance of what? Joy. And their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. Even though they're going through some tough times, Paul says they have joy when they give. They're glad to give. Now look at chapter 9 and verse 7. Going back to chapter 9 and verse 7, Paul says each one must do just he has purpose in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God didn't just like a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. The only kind of giver that pleases God is a cheerful giver. And so can I tell you where that comes from? Can I tell you where a cheerful heart comes from? When giving to the Lord. You see, a cheerful heart comes from a heart of love. A heart of love for God. A heart of love for Jesus, a heart of love for lost souls, and a heart of love for the work of the Lord. My dear friends, if you want to know just how much some, a person loves something, watch where they're spending their money. Watch where they're spending their money. Many of you know that I love me some Washington commanders. Now, it's still weird calling them the commanders, but... I'll do that to be politically correct. You, I, I love me some Washington Commanders, right? Y'all know that. I've been a fan for 30 years, but even though I love me some Washington Commanders, I don't love them enough to buy the NFL Sunday ticket this year. You know how much it costs to get the NFL Sunday ticket through YouTube this year? 
over $500. I love me some Washington Commanders, but I don't love them that much. I don't love them much to pay over $500 to watch them lose a bunch of games this year. I'm not paying for no NFL Sunday ticket to watch no Washington Commanders, but I'm going to tell you all something. When it comes to my kids, when it comes to our kids, if they ever got sick and they needed some treatment or surgery to survive and live, and our insurance is not going to cover much of that, and I got to come up with a bunch of money, you think I'm going to sit down and try to figure out how I'm going to do that? You think I'm going to have to debate that? You think I'm going to sit back and go, well, whoo, man, I love my kids, but I got to figure out how to pay for this and take this vacation still. Or I got to figure out how I'm going to save my kids and, and come up with this money, empty out my bank account, but I also want to get a $100,000 car, or I want to buy me a new camper, or I want to buy me an expensive watch. Let me tell you something. I love my kids so much that if I had to empty out my bank account to save their lives, I would do it in a heartbeat and I would sell everything I had. I would do whatever I had to do to pay for that surgery, to pay for that treatment. You know why? I love them. I would give up everything I had to save their life and I have a smile on my face doing it. So that's where cheerful giving comes from. It comes from a heart of love. When you love something, you'll be happy when you're spending money on it. But a cheerful heart doesn't just come from a heart of love. You know where else it comes from? A heart of gratitude. A heart of gratitude for all the blessings that God gives me in my life. Gratitude for my family. Gratitude for my wife, for, for my kids. Gratitude for my home. Gratitude for the food I eat, the air I breathe, the cars I drive. Gratitude for my country. Gratitude especially for Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. In fact, it's interesting how Paul closes chapter 9 in verse number 15 by motivating the Corinthians to give with these words. And in 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 15, he says, Thanks be to God for his what? Indescribable gift. Who's that? That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Jesus is the main thing that should motivate us to be cheerful givers. Cheerful giving comes from a heart of gratitude, and it also comes from seeing all the good that my giving does. It also comes from, from seeing how through my giving, a lot of kingdom work is being done. The gospel is being preached. Needy saints are being taken care of. We're able to have the things we need here to worship God in spirit and in truth. See, we need to think about that word cheerful. As we study through what Paul says in these two chapters, and then one final word very quickly. I want to think about that word generous. I want to think about generous. You know, you know, a question that is often asked of me as a preacher from Christians from time to time is exactly how much. How much should I give to God? What percentage? How much of my paycheck? I mean, I know under the law, the Israelites had to tithe. They had to tithe unto the Lord, but we don't live under the old law. We live under the new covenant. And so how much exactly should I have to write the check for on Sunday? I've had that, that question asked to me a lot, and maybe you've also heard that question, and so let me say a couple of things about that very quickly. First, let me say that when it comes to that question, the New Testament doesn't say. It doesn't say. 
It doesn't tell Christians exactly how much they are to give. In 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 2, Paul says that we are to give as we have been what? Prospered. That varies from person to person, right? That varies from Christian to Christian. That varies from family to family. Some people, some families prosper a lot and others not so much. The New Testament doesn't give a specific number or a specific percentage for Christians to give. But what it does tell us to do is examine our hearts. It tells us to examine our hearts. It tells us the purpose in our hearts. We need to consider just how much we love God and just how much we appreciate all God has done for us and return to him what we know is right based on our prosperity. That's what the scripture says. You see, God is much more concerned with our hearts and with our attitudes when giving than an exact dollar amount. In fact, go back to 2 Corinthians one more time and look at chapter 8, verse 2. Chapter 8 and verse 2, Paul says that in a great ordeal of affliction, talking about the churches in Macedonia, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty. These are poor people, Paul is saying. They don't have a whole lot. They certainly don't have what we have in 21st century America. But he said they overflowed in the wealth of their what? Liberality. You see, so often we say, you know, as Christians, we shouldn't be liberal. Well, Paul says there's a part of us that should be liberal. We need to be liberal with our giving. We need to be liberal, liberal with our giving like these Christians were. And then in verse number three, he goes on to say, for I testify that according to their ability and even beyond it, they go above and beyond, above and beyond, they gave of their own accord. These are what you call generous givers. Now go back. To chapter 9 again. Look at chapter 9, verse number 6. We read verse 7. Look at verse 6. Now this I say, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Notice that word bountifully there. What's Paul mean when he uses that word? I mean, with that word, is Paul teaching the prosperity gospel? Is that what Paul is saying? Is he, if, is he saying that if we sow a bountiful seed, God is going to automatically prosper us financially. God promises to make sure that we get a fifteen dollars or $20,000 check in the mail out of nowhere in a couple of weeks. Is that what Paul's saying there? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You see, in the context of this verse, when Paul speaks of sowing and reaping bountifully, he is saying that when giving to God, we must give. In faith. We got to give in faith. We got to give believing that if we are generous to the Lord, the Lord will take care of us and ensure that we always have the resources we need to keep being generous. You see, what this verse teaches us is our giving is a demonstration of our faith. It's a demonstration of our belief and trust in the Lord. You see, if you want to measure right now just how much faith you have in God and his ability to take care of you, then measure your giving. Measure your giving. Understand that God doesn't need your money. God doesn't need my money. God owns everything. He doesn't need any of our money. But through our giving, we demonstrate how much we trust him. 
We demonstrate how much faith we have. We demonstrate if we really appreciate all he has done for us in our lives. Now, there's a lot more we could say about this, but we're going to say that for Thursday nights at 7 over the next couple of weeks. For now, I just want you to take this away. I want you to take away this. Giving on the first day of the week is a big deal. It's a big deal. It is a big deal of God, to God. It is an act of worship that is just as important as the Lord's Supper and everything else we do. And it's got to be done right. It's got to be done scripturally and cheerfully and generously and in the spirit of Jesus Christ. In fact, one more passage in 2 Corinthians. Look at chapter 8 and verse 8. As Paul is trying to motivate these Christians in Achaia to fulfill their commitment to help their brethren in Judea, he says in 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. We're going to see just how much you love your brethren through your giving. And then in verse number 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that, th that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Notice how Paul says that one of the main things that should motivate us to be godly givers is Jesus. It's the fact that Jesus became poor for us. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come here and die for us, to empty himself for us. Jesus sacrificed for us at the highest level, and it shouldn't be hard for us to be cheerful and sacrificial and are given to him, even though the New Testament doesn't give us an exact number on how much to give. Jesus gave it all for us, and maybe you need to come to Jesus right now. Maybe you need to start walking with the king right now. That is your desire. If you want to start doing that for the first time through faith and repentance and baptism, or if you need to rededicate yourself to him, whatever spiritual needs you may have, come to the front. Let's stand. Let's sing.